Thank you for tuning in to this webinar, a refresher of CARES Act funding and effect on single audits. This webinar is hosted by AGH University and presented by AGH. AGH was one of the first firms in its region to develop a practice specializing in public sector entities. It remains a leading CPA and advisory firm serving state and local governments as well as other public sector organizations. Its professionals deal exclusively with the issues affecting the public sector, the kinds of issues you face each day. Today's speaker is Mike Lowry. Mike specializes in governmental and not-for-profit clients. Prior to joining AGH, Mike's experience includes nearly 20 years of financial and technology leadership positions in hospitality management companies. He's a CPA. He's earned the designation of Certified Government Financial Manager, and he's a member of the AICPA and the Kansas Society of CPAs. This webinar will cover the challenges facing municipalities and not-for-profit entities in properly managing the CARES Act funding to ensure those entities are prepared for their financial statement audit and single audit. Participants will learn best practices, common pitfalls, and a roadmap to current authoritative guidance based on lessons learned. Well, hello. <clears throat> so here are our learning objectives for the next 50 minutes or so. Um, now that we have all been living with the COVID-19 pandemic for a little over a year now, we thought we would take some time, go over a refresher on CARES funding, what it can be spent on and how to account for it. Um, you know, due to the amounts of, of, of funding the CARES Act pushed out to state and local governments, it's created a situation where many governments who have either not had a single audit in a while because they normally just don't receive a lot of grant funding or many governments who have never had to have a single audit in the past. Um, so during this presentation, we will review some of the basic single audit concepts and how those concepts apply to CARES funding specifically. So for those of you that are old pros at single audit, a lot of this is gonna sound very familiar. Um, if you haven't had a single audit in a while, this is gonna be a, a, hopefully a, a great refresher for you. Before we jump in, let's discuss when a single audit is required. So when a, a non-federal entity expends 750,000 or more of federal awards in their fiscal year, um, that is when a single audit is triggered. So note that it's, the trigger is, not what, is uh, not what was received, in other words, not how much federal funding you receive, but the trigger is what you actually spend in federal funds in a, a given year. The, the OMB came out with a memo in March of 2021. Um, and if you had not already, or in March of 2020, I believe, uh, if you had not already submitted your single audit before then, it allows for extensions <clears throat> up to six months beyond the normal due date. Um, under normal circumstances, the due date is nine months after your year end or 30 days after the report is issued, whichever is sooner. However, if you do take advantage of the extension, you must document the reasoning behind needing to take advantage of that extension. <clears throat> it, it's not required, but it might be a good idea to even add a footnote to the schedule of expenditures of federal awards explaining the reason. Uh, for the extension, and for those of you that are new to single audits, we'll be jumping into what the schedule of expenditures of federal awards is. Uh, and then also note that uh, there are no more extensions past the June 30 of this year. Here are the four largest programs uh, of the federal government's response to the pandemic. 
this does not include the American Re Recovery Plan that, that came out um, after this slide was done, but we'll be looking at that in more detail later in the presentation. Our focus today is on the Coronavirus Relief Fund, or CRF. Um, note that in addition to these four largest programs, uh, the CARES Act did provide funding to existing programs and the awarding agency or pass-through entity should identify that funding in the award documents. This will be important uh, for the correct presentation of the Schedule of Expenditures of Federal Awards or CFA, which we will discuss later. A quick note here on the Paycheck Protection Program or PPP. Um, this one is not subject to the single audit, so it will not go on the CFA, but entities receiving $2 million or more in funding will be subject to audit by the SBA or Small Business Administration, and entities that received smaller amounts uh, will be subject to random audits. So entities that received less than $2 million are going to be thrown into a pool and, and possibly subject to audit. So while your auditors will not be um, auditing this program, um, there is a good chance that you will still have some kind of audit on the PPP program. Okay, here is a quick review of what the timeline has been with relief and funding programs. The CARES Act was passed in March 27, 2020 with an original date for eligible expenditures through December 31st, 2020. Uh, that was extended through December 31st, 21, via the Consolidated Appropriations Act. And then we have new funding from the American Rescue Plan. Uh, this was passed in March of this year, and funding has started to be pushed out this month. We have a lot of clients that have already received their first payment for, uh, for this funding. Uh, covered expenditures for this plan include the time period between March and December 31st, 2024. This is the basic framework for how to spend and account for CARES funding. Uh, an expenditure must be a necessary response to COVID-19, uh, was not accounted for in the budget most recently approved as of March 27, 2020, and incur incurred during the covered period of March 1st, 2020 through December 31st, 2021. Um, uh, if you have moved into a new budget cycle or year since uh, the most recently approved budget as of March 27, 2020, you still use this budget as the baseline moving forward. So we've had a lot of questions about that. Um, now that we are almost in uh, June of this year, there's a good chance that you've moved past uh, or into a new budget cycle since the March 27, 2020 date. Um, but just to clarify, you would use that budget that was in effect at that time as the baseline. Let's drill down on what is meant by necessary expenditures. Must be necessary, must be a necessary response to the COVID-19 pandemic. Expenditures such as medical and public health needs and specific types of economic support. Note that revenue replacement is not allowed under the CARES Act or CFR, CRF funding. Um, so for example, a, govern, a government could not provide economic assistance to property owners that were behind on property tax payments due to the pandemic. 
um, for the purpose of paying back those delinquent taxes. So as we all know, many people lost their jobs or were unemployed for a time, fell behind uh, you know, on their, their payments. Um, so uh, you know, if a government was to provide CARES funding to its property tax owners um, to pay back their delinquent taxes, that would be considered uh, revenue replacement, which is not allowed. Um, the more proper response in this situation would be that um, uh, providing extensions on the due dates for those property tax payments. Again, if you have moved into a new budget cycle since March 27th of 2020, use the budget that was in effect as the baseline at that time. So what does substantially different use mean? Um, I've got a couple of examples here. Um, all centering around a, a, a payroll situation, but uh, the first one being uh, if you were to redeploy corrections facility staff to enforce social distancing, that would be a substantially different use. Redeploying police to enforce stay-at-home orders or diverting educational support staff or faculty to develop online learning capabilities. And one more reminder that the cost must be incurred during the covered period of March 2020 through December 31st, 2021. You're gonna hear me uh, refer to that covered period quite often throughout the webinar today. And just a quick summary again, uh, that cost must be a necessary expenditure due to the pandemic during the covered period and not previously budgeted. So this is a quick summary, uh, a good referral screen if you need to um, for when you're looking at those expenditures. And I think we are ready for our next polling question. And let's take a minute to talk about when a cost is considered incurred. Number one, if performance or delivery must take place during the covered period and um, interest for, interestingly enough, uh, payment of funds uh, do not necessarily have to take place during the covered period. So the initial guidance that came out uh, from the Department of Treasury um, provided that the cost of an expenditure uh, was incurred when the recipient expended the funds, so when they made payment. Um, but then they actually reconsidered this point after looking closer at state and local governments and what their payment practices were. So payment of funds do not have to be made um, during the covered period, uh, but generally should be made within 90 days um, after. Here's an, a, a lease example uh, or lease expenditure where payment may not be made during the covered period. So uh, whether you make the lease payment before or after the covered period, if part of the lease period is within that covered period, those costs related to the part of the lease that falls within the covered period is an eligible expenditure. Um, you might have other situations that fall into this scenario um, other than a lease, uh, but just keep in mind, um, you know, that payment does not necessarily have to be made during the covered period to be eligible.
Continuing on, when, when is an eligible cost incurred? Um, for example, uh, goods that must be delivered in December in order to be available for use in January could be covered using CRF funding. Uh, bulk purchases, as long as a portion of the goods are used during the covered period, and then durable goods, acquisition must be during the covered period, must be necessary due to the pandemic and used in the current and subsequent period. Uh, with timing, uh, performance and delivery uh, must occur during the covered period. So, um, uh, you know, if it's some type of service, then performance of that service would need to happen during the covered period. Um, and then if it's uh, goods or durable goods, then delivery would need to take place during the covered period. For those of you that are new to the world of single audits, you may not be familiar with the terms pass-through entity and subrecipients. But in simple terms, if you have received funding from a larger government, for example, you are a city that received funds directly from the state or county, that state or county would be considered the pass-through entity, uh, and you are considered a subrecipient. And, and the same spending rules apply to you as the state or county. Here are the six main categories of eligible expenditures. Again, they must be necessary expenditures due to the pandemic, um, non-budgeted, and during the covered period. Uh, again, these are just categories. Uh, I'll draw your attention to the bottom right uh, where it says any other COVID-19 related expenses. The thing to keep in mind on this would be uh, to think about what the main trigger would be. Is it a necessary response to the pandemic? Um, if you can meet that criteria or that litmus test, um, probably going to be an eligible expenditure under the CRF funding. Here are examples of ineligible expenditures. Um, I'll draw your attention to the top middle example, uh, expenses reimbursed under other federal programs. What this means that a recipient is not allowed to double dip. Um, for example, uh, if there are expenditures that are reimbursed under another federal program you are receiving, you cannot claim reimbursement again um, just because those expenditures may be eligible under CRF funding. This may, this may sound like common sense, uh, but believe it or not, we have had questions um, that have come up uh, with folks that have already turned in reimbursements for some other federal program and then realized those expenditures also qualified under CRF. So again, not allowed to double dip. So what about indirect costs? In general, expenses like rent, utilities, office supplies, et cetera, are not allowed. However, if you have payroll and benefits related to um, general administrative duties, for example, as long as the time spent can be documented to the pandemic effort, uh, those costs would be allowed. Um, again, the trigger is tying to the pandemic. If something is specifically purchased for this ever good chance, it is going to be an eligible cost. Um, and then I say in general, when it comes to rent, utilities, office supplies, et cetera, um, we've had um, folks that have had to um, go out and rent a facility um, to provide, um, to help with the vaccination effort. 
Um, again, that was specifically tied to the pandemic. Um, so in all likelihood that rent is eligible. So it really just depends uh, on what the circumstances are and if it can be tied to the pandemic effort. Okay, so what if you do not spend all of your, your CARES funding? So I think this might be exceptional cases, but if it turns out you do not end up spending all of your CARES funding, it must be returned to the treasury in one of three ways. Uh, Fedwire is the preferred method. And if you don't have a Fedwire account, um, you can go out and Google on how to set one up. Um, I did it a few days ago. It does provide some clear step-by-step -step instructions on how to set that up. Um, if you don't want to take the time or don't have a Fedwire account, the second option would be to send an ACH payment to the treasury. And then uh, third, but the least preferred method would be to write a check to the Department of Treasury. What about costs related to a single audit? So um, there are a few of you out there that uh, have not had a single audit before, or it's been a while since you've had a single audit and maybe you didn't budget for those extra audit costs. Um, CRF does allow for some audit costs related to single audit as eligible expenditures. So the good news is a proportionate share of those costs of the single audit are allowed. What about payroll? So here are the main concepts to understand when using CARES funding or CRF funding to cover payroll, substantially different use, substantially dedicated, public health and public safety, not substantially dedicated, and then covered benefits. So what is meant by sub substantially different use? Um, payroll costs under CR funding has to be for a substantially different use. There are a few exceptions that we will discuss in a moment, but for example, uh, and we touched on this example before, um, redeploying educational support staff or um, faculty to develop online learning capabilities, such as providing IT support that is not part of the staff or faculty's ordinary responsibilities. Uh, note that the exception to this would be payroll related to public health and safety personnel, so police officers, um, fire uh, employees, EMTs, those, those uh, categories, those are automatically eligible expenditures uh, under the CARES Act. Substantially dedicated. Uh, it's important to note that, uh, you know, there really is not a precise definition of substantially dedicated by the feds. Um, they've only really provided um, examples of what they consider substantially dedicated. So if you have payroll expenses of personnel that you consider to be substantially dedicated and they are not of the type of the provided examples, it does not mean they are not eligible. It just means that you will need to maintain documentation of why they meet the substantially dedicated criteria. Uh, good to include in that documentation uh, a basis for your conclusion on why they are being considered substantially dedicated. Uh, this slide here is a reminder that you may presume, as we mentioned, that public health and safety personnel are automatically considered substantially dedicated. And for that matter, the concept of substantially different use criteria does not apply either. Okay. 
So what if you have employees that are not substantially dedicated, but spend some of their time related to the COVID-19 pandemic? Can you claim these expenses? The answer is yes, but remember, uh, it is important that you track and have supporting documentation for their time. So again, documentation, good payroll records, how much time they spent will be very important. In addition to the payroll, are there related benefit costs eligible expenditures under the CRF funding? The answer is yes. Here are some examples of benefits that may be covered under the CRF funding. This is not a complete list, so if you have benefits not on this list, I would refer to the Treasury guidance to double check, and we have provided a link to that guidance at the end of the presentation. Switching gears here a little bit, let's move into some basic concepts of the single audit and grants management, starting with the schedule of expenditures of federal awards or CIFA. Um, for those of you who may not have had a single audit before, simply put, the CIFA is a supplemental schedule to an organization's financial statements, uh, recapping expenditures of federal awards during the organization's fiscal year by agency and program. It provides a picture of all federal awards of which an organization expended funds during its fiscal year. So when should expenditures go on the CIFA? The basic answer is when a federal expenditure is incurred under normal accounting policies and procedures. Specifically speaking for CF, CRF funding or CARES Act, um, if it qualifies as an eligible expenditure based on the guidelines we have spent the first half of the presentation on, uh, it would go on your CIFA for your current period under audit. Um, one concept that has is not necessarily new, but has really surfaced during the pandemic and with the CARES Act and CFR, CRF funding, um, you know, due to the urgent nature of how these funds were pushed out to state and local governments. And uh, in many cases, uh, there was a lack of communication. Um, so there's this concept of out-of-period amounts. Uh, the idea that uh, we can include expenditures from a different fiscal year in the current year CIFA. Uh, for example, the covered period is from March 2020 through December 31st, 2021. Uh, if, if an entity's fiscal year ended, let's say April 30th, 2020, um, it might have uh, been possible that you were not aware of what the, the total amount of CARES funding was that you received. You might not have identified uh, all of the eligible expenditures uh, during that time that qualified uh, during that first uh, year uh, of the covered period. So in the next fiscal year, um, uh, it is possible to go back and pick up those expenditures and report them on your CIFA and claim those expenditures. It's important to note that when you are drafting your CIFA, um, that you specifically identify which funds are COVID-19 funds. Uh, keep in mind that while CARES Act created many new federal programs, it also provided supplemental funding to existing programs. So you likely have programs that have been on your CIFA for many years, uh, and, and now they have uh, COVID-19 supplemental funds. Um, that program would now need to be broken out into two line items on your CIFA. And we have an example here on the next slide. 
Here's a basic example of how an existing grant that receives supplemental COVID-19 assistance should be displayed on the CIFA. Uh, notice in the middle of your screen, the number 93.558. This is the assistance listing number previously known, um, for those of you that have been getting single audits for a while, previously known as the Catalog of Federal Domestic Assistance or CFDA number. Uh, this is the identifier assigned by the federal government for the grant program. Um, it is now referred to as the assistance listing. Um, notice on the header of this slide, we have the acronym CIFA and DCF. We haven't talked about the DCF or data collection form yet. <clears throat> uh, the data collection form is an online form that is part of the single audit reporting package, and it must be sent to the Federal Audit Clearinghouse. Um, the data collection form is filed or must be filed within 30 days after your single audit report has been issued. Uh, this is how the federal government knows you've had a single audit um, done and then what the results of that single audit were. Um, if you've never been through this process before, don't worry, your auditors will assist you with this process. When should expenditures go on the CFA? Uh, remember that the focus of the CIFA is based on expenditures, not revenue. Um, the trigger for that requirement is $750,000 or more in federal expenditures in any given year. Um, generally, the, account, uh, the accounting for reporting expenditures on the CIFA uh, follow the basis of accounting used by your entity, but not always. Um, so, uh, you know, for governments um, uh, producing a comprehensive annual financial report, for example, uh, may be using up to three basis of accounting, including full accrual, modified accrual, and budgetary basis. Um, so many times the CIFA will be uh, either on the full accrual basis or uh, modified or budgetary basis. So um, doesn't necessarily have to follow um, the basis in your financial statements, but generally it will. In these next few slides, we are going to be taking a look at all the moving parts when it comes to grants management. Uh, under normal circumstances, this is challenging, but when you throw in conditions of a pandemic, the urgent nature of the response from the federal government, uh, a lack of guidance, uh, a lack of award documents, and then throw in a remote work environment on top of that, uh, the stakes qu can quickly escalate and uh, grants management is challenging under normal circumstances. So uh, thought we would spend a few moments covering some of these concepts. Um, so recognition or when is there an award? Most of you have probably figured this out uh, by now for the CARES Act and the CFR, CRF funding, uh, but now that they are just starting to push out the American Rescue Plan funds, this could be an issue. Uh, especially for some of you with the upcoming June 30 year ends. Um, so what is the typical award process? So usually this happens in a three-phase life cycle. Um, number one, you have the pre-award phase. Recipients are made aware of funding opportunities and applications are submitted and reviewed. Uh, then you move into the award phase. 
Award decisions are made and the recipients are notified via email communication and award documents are signed both by both parties and agree to the terms. And then uh, the final stage is what we call the post-award phase. This is where you're implementing the program, running the mission of the program, uh, doing any uh, reporting if that is required, and then um, a final phase of closeout. So with the CARES Act and the urgent nature of getting the funding out into the community, uh, in many, if not most, uh, the typical pre-award and award phases just didn't happen. Uh, in many cases, funds just started showing up in bank accounts. So if, if these have been, uh, if these things have been an issue for you, what steps can you take? Um, again, I think every organization is going to be different, but for auditors and auditees, uh, I would start with talking with management and department heads within the entity. Uh, governments can be very disaggregated uh, with different departments, different agencies, and we always don't talk to each other. Um, so visiting with your different departments, talking with finance, uh, determine when funds were received and from whom. Uh, you can reach out to your state or your pass-through entity for clarification. Um, and then again, are there any email communications you can review? Um, did the governing body take any action that is documented in the board minutes? Um, so again, by now, um, you have you know, probably figured this out as it relates to um, CRF funding, uh, but could be faced with these challenges again as the federal government starts to push out the American Rescue Plan funding. And again, they are starting that this month. We've had many clients who've already received their first payment. And uh, let's talk about communication. Communication needs to go both ways. So if you have passed funds down to a smaller government or a subrecipient, uh, make sure they are informed. Um, uh, need to make sure you're communicating the federal award number, the assistance listing number, or CFDA number, as it used to be known by, and then um, uh, the amount uh, of any COVID-19 funds. So this is if this is a grant, for example, that uh, you've had subrecipients for the last five years or so, um, uh, it could be uh, that uh, this grant received supplemental funding. Um, so you would need to identify the supplemental funding above and beyond the regular funding if it's just not a straight up CARES Act funding type program. Um, and uh, one thing uh, that we've been seeing as we've been uh, providing audit services to some of our clients as it relates to this, um, if you have not had subrecipients before, but the um, CARES Act or CFR funding with the amount of funding now you have subrecipients, uh, money that you're pushing out to other smaller communities, you, you may not be used to all the requirements surrounding um, subrecipients. And so the main thing to look out for, um, and if you, you didn't have any under the uh, CARES Act, you may have some under the American Rescue Plan, but if you have a subrecipient, before you push that payment out to them, you need to check SAM.gov and make sure that that subrecipient has not been suspended or debarred from the federal government. If you are suspended or debarred from the federal government, you are not allowed to do business with the federal government and you would not be allowed to receive federal funds. So um, 
again, need to make sure you're checking for that because your auditors will be. And if you've passed the funds down to another entity, it's important to determine if they are a contractor or a sub-recipient. In simple terms, a contractor is defined as an entity that receives a contract, and a subrecipient is defined as a non-federal entity that receives a subaward to carry out part of a federal program. Um, for example, um, many entities have used CARES funding to hire um, firms to assist them in carrying out the mission of the public health emergency, such as um, medical firms to provide COVID-19 testing for a county, for example. Um, in other words, they are outsourcing one element or one piece of the program to a private firm in order to help the county fulfill the overall mission of the program versus um, a county that might pass funds down to a city to take on the entire responsibility of fulfilling the mission of the program. So in my mind, the first example is more of a co contractor where a county is really hiring a private firm just to help with a piece of it. Um, and the second example would be more of a subrecipient. However, uh, in reality, at times it can be difficult to determine if you are dealing with a contractor or subrecipient. So here we provided some common characteristics of contractors and subrecipients. Um, note that this can and sometimes does involve judgment, and the most important piece is to document the basis of your conclusion. Uh, if you do get into a situation where you just can't decide, hey, I just don't know if it's a contractor or a subrecipient. I'm looking at these characteristics and they're very close. Um, in my mind, it would be best to always fall on the side of subrecipient. Um, when you have a subrecipient, there are monitoring responsibilities that mu must take place by the pass-through entity. And if those don't take place, uh, you as the pass-through entity could get into some trouble with the feds. So it's always... Uh, uh, better to take the conservative approach uh, when you're in this dilemma and designate them as a subrecipient. Again, that's if you just uh, really can't make a decision. Um, always a good idea to maybe um, consult your auditors, have them weigh in as well. Quick note that um, how you determine your payments, whether it's a contractor or subrecipient, um, that this does have implications on your CIFA. Um, if they are a contractor, uh, the payment to the contractor simply shows up as a normal expenditure on the CIFA, but they have, if they are a subrecipient, those funds must be specifically identified uh, as, uh, as passed down to a subrecipient. So important thing to remember on that. Another term is uh, this concept of subrecipient versus beneficiary. Um, this is another um, it's, it's been around for a while, but uh, the CARES Act has, has put a new light on this issue. Um, the uniform guidance, uh, which is the guidance, uh, the general guidance for single audits, um, has historically defined beneficiary as an individual, but the Department of Treasury has included beneficiaries as businesses, nonprofits, or educational institutions um, as it relates to the CRF, CRF funding. Um, so I, I threw a couple of examples up here on the slide to kind of give you an idea of when you might be dealing with a subrecipient versus a beneficiary. Um, the first one here is 
um, an organization is using CARES funding for payroll and the employee receiving the payroll payment. So uh, under uh, this concept, uh, in my mind, the organization um, that is using CARES funding to make their payroll would be the benefit, the subrecipient, and the employee receiving the payroll payment is the beneficiary of that program. Another example here is a city using CARES funding to establish a small business for giveable loan program, and then the small business that receives that money. So the city would be the subrecipient because they are carrying out fulfilling the mission of the program, and then the small business in this case would be the beneficiary um, of the program. Uh, one quick note. So as you think about subrecipient versus beneficiary, um, think about who is receiving the money to carry out the mission of the program versus who is receiving money to benefit from the program. And it looks like we are at our final polling question. And we are running a little early today, Mike. So if you would, let's just go ahead and continue on with your presentation. And when we get close to the end, I'll, I'll jump in and we'll launch that last polling question. All right. So for any of us who have been through some kind of audit, uh, we know it is important to have documentation for expenditures. Uh, make sure you can support expenditures by having documentation of receipts and contracts, time reporting, good payroll records, um, any documents requesting and authorizing benefits paid, and then any documentation that might be needed for substantially dedicated employees, for those employees that fall outside of uh, the ones that are presumed to be substantially dedicated like public health and public safety employees. If you have any others in other categories that you've considered substantially dedicated, um, you need to make sure you have um, good documentation uh, on how that effort or their efforts were tied to the public health emergency and then also key to that documentation for substantially dedicated employees would your basis for conclusion. Under any situation, internal controls are essential to good grants management, but for many governments, uh, the pandemic has led to significant changes in day-to-day uh, -day operations and working environments, and this can have an impact on established internal controls. So you'll need to evaluate how any changes in the day-to-day -day operations due to the pandemic may have impacted your internal controls. Um, look at all aspects of the organization and determine any changes that occurred due to the pandemic and if internal controls were affected, ask yourself if adjustments or mitigating controls are needed to ensure best practices are being maintained. Uh, for example, uh, pivoting to a remote work environment may have created the need to move from maybe a more paper-based operation to um, electronic-based operations. So how do controls need to be tweaked to ensure they are still in place? For example, um, you know, now maybe having to look at electronic approvals and reviews or electronic authorizations, things of that nature. One last single audit topic before we move on to uh, a few slides on the American Rescue Plan, and that is reporting. Uh, Section 15011 of the CARES Act does require 
prime recipients to do quarterly reporting. Prime recipients are those that received 150,000 or more directly from the federal government. These reports are due 10 days after the end of each calendar quarter. Um, so if you received 150,000 or more, but received the funds through a pass-through entity such as the state or county, you did not receive it directly from the federal government, so your entity would not be subject to the quarterly reporting. Um, it must be, uh, uh, to be considered a prime, that you received money directly from the federal government. Okay, um, some quick notes on the American Rescue Plan. Um, this was passed March 10th of this year. And as I've mentioned, uh, they have started pushing funds down to state and local governments this month. It includes 350 billion, broken down as 195 billion for states, 130 billion for local governments, 20 billion for tribal governments, and 4.5 billion for territories. State and local governments will receive 50% of their funding this month um, or May. Um, and the balance will, will come 12 months later. Uh, territories will receive one payment uh, this month or in May, and tribal governments will receive their payments uh, in May and June. Um, the general guidelines for how this money can uh, be spent has been communicated, um, but I will tell you specifics are still being uh, developed, so stay tuned for more guidelines with this program. Um, we're hoping to put out uh, some alerts, um, at least uh, to links on where this clarification can be uh, reviewed. Um, so generally, uh, if costs were eligible under the CRF, it is eligible under this plan. However, uh, the American Rescue Plan is a little more liberal with the spending, not quite as stringent on what it can be spent on. Um, it does allow for some capital projects, uh, infrastructure, uh, including broadband. So, you know, as we all moved to remote working environments and remote learning environments, um, the some of the weaknesses in our um, national broadband infrastructure were identified. Um, so that now is part of the plan. Um, and uh, quite interestingly enough, um, while CRF did not allow for uh, revenue loss replacement, um, the American Rescue Plan does. So it allows the replacement in lost revenues from general revenues. Uh, uh, so there, you use a base revenue from the first full fiscal year prior to the pandemic. So um, go back to your first full year, fiscal year, prior to the pandemic, so 2019 for most of us, that would be um, your base year. So you'd look at your general revenues from that year. Um, the guidance has provided a calculation uh, on uh, how to calculate how much of the American Rescue Plan funding you can use as revenue loss replacement. Um, so uh, we've provided a link at the end of, of the presentation uh, where you can go out and look at some of the frequently asked questions that have been documented so far on this plan. Um, the other interesting item on this, um, under CRF uh, or CARES Act, you know, it did not allow uh, 
when it came to payroll, you pay bonuses and things of that nature. Uh, well, the American Rescue Plan does allow for what they're calling premium pay for essential workers. So essential workers are those critical infrastructure sectors um, such as healthcare, education, childcare, transportation, public health and safety, among others. <clears throat> and it, it's encouraging uh, governments to um, focus on premium pay for those lower income workers. And the premium pay can be up to 150% of the greater of the state or county average annual wage rate. And um, the covered period uh, for the American Rescue Plan would be March 3rd, 2021. Um, and uh, you have until December 31st, 2024 to spend those funds. Uh, these next few slides we've added uh, just for your reference. Um, if you remember GASB 95, which was issued in May of 2020, uh, postponed the effective dates of a number of pending GASBs due to the pandemic. You know, as life starts getting back to normal, just a reminder that these dates will no doubt start sneaking up on us uh, sooner than we realize. So we need to start preparing now and revisiting timelines and due dates for these upcoming accounting standards, um, especially uh, as we're all aware, GASB 87 and the new lease standard um, will be creating a lot of work for most of us. And it looks like we have reached the end. I think we're going to have another polling question. Um, I, I will mention about the helpful guidance here. Um, um, for those of you who may be getting a single audit for the first time, um, or it's been a while, um, we've included a link here. Um, and I would encourage you to watch this. It, it's actually an auditee's perspective on preparing for a single audit for the first time. 